Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I'm really honored and delighted to have you here. Okay, at the time of this recording, we're about four, I think four or five days, I'm losing track already, but we're about four or five days into the, the outbreak of war in Ukraine. And um, I'm just acknowledging that and trying to acknowledge what I imagine to be the collective rise of fear and anxiety, um, grief, and terror, really, that, that, is, that is emerging in many of our hearts. Um, and uh, as I've been trying to say in, in kind of a maybe indirect way, but I think the Taoists speak to it very directly, and I've trying to been, been trying, trying, trying to share that, that I've been trying to speak to how um, one way of understanding the conflicts in the world is to see how those conflicts emanate from hearts, individual hearts, and, and then the collective energies of those hearts. But it, ultimately, the conflicts in the world originate in conflicts within one, one's heart, which isn't to say that if we just do our own practice in kind of a Pollyannish way or a Pollyannish mindset, if we just do our own practice, then then Putin will disappear and recede and and, and world harmony is, is um, instantaneously generated. I don't, that, I don't think that's accurate. What I do think is accurate is that as individuals, in learning skill sets that promote inner well-being, inner stillness, inner peace, inner harmony, we can see uh, more broadly how those dynamics get projected and or realized in the world. So sometimes if there's disharmonious energy within, you can start to see how that energy um, shares a DNA with the disharmonious energy in the world. Um, and, and that's really the theme of this episode, actually. This talk I'm giving is focusing and looking at how in our meditation, in our spiritual practice, when we really uh, lean into a quality or dynamic of deep listening, which is the theme that I've been addressing for several weeks now, but with the sense of deep listening and, and inclining the mind and, and developing an ability for the mind to flow with that, with that listening, in, in exploring the fluidity of listening, we often will sense more clearly the elements of us, and, and the analogy I give here is the frozen ice cube parts of us that um, resist that flow, that, that are frozen within the flow. So um, the, the theme of this talk is about how, to, how our practice will reveal these parts of us that are frozen and create a safe space, an internal space, safe space of practice whereby these frozen parts of us can start to melt be harmonized, healed, and integrated within the broader flow of our life. And that, that theme will be extended now over the next several weeks of, of talks and classes that Terry and I teach. Which is to say, too, if you'd like to practice with us and explore this, this kind of holistic cultivation of flow within your practice and your life, um, do check out the Riverbird Sangha. We're saying this is our Sangha where we have one practice with many forms of flow. So we find flow within Qigong practice, we explore flow within yin yoga practice, particularly flowing 
the flowing nature of the breath within yin yoga. And then we explore flow um, experience within the mind, how we can fluidly adapt and, and flow within the rhythm of the way our mind and heart are thinking, exploring, sensing, and being. So if that's of interest, do check out the Riverbird Sangha. There's a link for you in the show notes. We offer monthly memberships uh, starting at $5 a month, and um, that gets you access to our four online weekly classes over Zoom, as well as access to all our replays. So replays from the from the current week, but all pre-existing replays from the past um, nearly two years of our uh, practice community now. So there's a lot of resources in the library for you, including tutorials on how to practice. So if you're brand new, there's workshops and tutorials that give you the kind of a, a, a high level introduction to what we're teaching so that you can jump right in. Um, so if you're interested in that, do check it out. That's the Riverbird Sangha uh, with a link for you in the show notes. And um, for the yin yoga folks out there that are potentially looking for some continuing education or interested in deepening your teaching repertoire to include the uh, theory and application of traditional Chinese medicine, this spring I'll be running a three-month a course on that's online on the core elements of, of ch traditional Chinese medicine and how those can be um, kind of collaborated with in the yin yoga practice to optimize harmonizing one's chi. So if that's of interest to you, there's a link for the traditional Chinese medicine yin yoga teacher training in the show notes. And without further ado, I give you today's talk, Listening Like Water. So welcome back to all of you. Um, so I've been trying to suggest um, at different points in our sessions, whether it's in these Monday evening sessions or during the, um, the yin yoga sessions, um, in our teaching, the way Terry and I are trying to teach, we're, we're realizing that, that certain themes may, may be very much emphasized for a period of time, and then they may be, they, those themes might recede for, for a period of time while other themes can be emphasized. But I used the idea of a braided, braided rug last week to, with this idea of bringing um, different strands and different colors of wool and, and fabric and weaving it together in the course of, of building this kind of rug of practice, of our, our, the creation of our practice. And I think maybe the idea of a collage art is in some ways more accurate in that um, as I've been reflecting on you know, our, our sessions, the emails that I receive that, that, I really want, that I love receiving from your reflections on the practice, questions, points for recommendation, poems, all of that becomes part of the, the raw material of the collage. And, um, you know, I, I sit back and listen to what our discussions have, have, have brought up and throughout the week really try to think about how can I bring, how can I shape this collage and help guide the shaping of this collage in a way that um, honors a sense of dialogue and collaboration with you all, because that's the way I, I really feel about it. Um, so um, in tonight's talk, what I wanted to do at the beginning was try to give a broad overview 
of some of the main themes that we've been exploring so far this year. At least, at least to bring those threads back into the to the to the topic or to the practice tonight, and um, and then share with you a story which I think, I hope, illustrates um, some of the universal aspects of this overview, um, and locates them within the specifics of the story, but also hopefully activates and opens up maybe recognition in yourself or self-recognition around these themes. So the, one of the themes, one of the themes that we've been looking at is um, in Terry's teaching and my yin practice is the theme of water. Uh, we've had some workshops on the theme of water um, and we'll be continuing to explore those, the aspects, the natural aspects of water and how that can resonate or start to be recognized within our practice. And whenever I personally think of water and spirituality, I always return to a, a very well um, referenced and often quoted passage from Chuangzi. Chuangzi was one of the great leading Taoist uh, philosophers and practitioners. But Chuangzi says, when water is still, it is like a mirror. When water is still, it's like a mirror. And if water thus derives lucidity from stillness, if water becomes lucid with stillness, how much more the faculties of the mind? The question he's asking is, when the faculties of, mi of mind achieve stillness, what kind of lucidity does that confer? What kind of lucidity does that uh, reveal? <clears throat> and that's a big part of, uh, or an aspect to the practice that we're, Terry and I are sharing, which is how do we harmonize our bodies, our energies and minds to experience this quality of lucidity of still water? The, the pure reflectiveness of a, of a unagitated uh, surface of consciousness. And it begs the question, and this is a question that we've been moving in and around, how does an individual's experience of this inner stillness, how does that experience or how does that development intersect and hopefully heal the wounds of the world. And by the wounds of the world, we can include the world's racism, the world's the exploitation within the world, the oppression, the degradation and devastation. And I'm trying to explore that, that line of inquiry with you both kind of conceptually in these talks, but then uh, if it's to be of any value, the conceptualization needs to be internalized and realized within the heart of our own practice. And there's a, a passage from a, a Taoist, sort of a book on early Taoism, that I think speaks to the relationship between the stillness that Chuangzi is referring to, the peace of inner stillness, and the implications for the world 
outside of the individual achieving that stillness. And really Taoism, I think, was one of the, the major um, sort of philosophical practice systems that was very, very explicit about this, this relationship between the inner state of the individual and the external state of the collective. But it's put here simply. The purpose of Taoism is to connect with the highest law, that is the way or the Tao. Taoist teachers counseled finding peace and order within oneself so as to first attain this peaceful vantage point before trying to guide the world towards it. Taoist teachers counseled finding peace and order within oneself so as to first attain this peaceful vantage point before trying to guide the world towards it. And if I juxtapose that sentiment, that, that kind of, that, 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 um, that worldview, if I juxtapose that against um, a passage that I transcribed recently from uh, Larry Ward's book, America's Racial Karma, where he says, with the lens of Buddhist psychology, and I would add practice, because Buddhist psychology is a, is a practice of psychology internally, with the lens of Buddhist psychology, he says, I began to see in a fresh way how to understand the lived experience of consciousness as a, as a dynamic and multi-layered reality. And this, is, this is something that I hope we can all, we're all exploring in our practice. Just that much of understanding the lived experience of consciousness as a dynamic and multi-layered reality. And the reason why, so this is in exploring in the Taoist sense inner peace and stillness necessi will necessitate and open us to this nature of, of consciousness. That it's a dynamic and multi-layered reality. And as Larry Ward says, not everything has an answer. Some things are not fixable. He's speaking specifically on racial karma. He says, I'm not talking about fixing our racial karma. I'm talking about bending the trajectory and transforming the energy that sustains it. And I love that phrase, bending the trajectory, that there's a relationship between understanding our inner subjective experience of consciousness and the causes and conditions that support inner peace or inner turmoil, and our ability to, to bend the trajectory and transform consciousness, thereby transforming the energy that sustains, in this case, racism, but I would say it applies to all the pathologies that emerge from an unintegrated and alienated consciousness. So just to come back to the idea of the Taoist kind of injunction, the Taoist suggestion, 
of harmonizing ourselves within first before we try to bring it about in the world. In one way of putting it, they seem to be speaking to uh, a shared DNA between the inner turmoil or the inner agitation that we experience subjectively and the outer turmoil or outer conflict we see in the world. That there's a, there's, these aren't separate dynamics, these are shared dynamics with shared DNA. And if we're able to sort of wake up to that DNA, we start to understand that DNA and become more sensitive to it and more wise and compassionate in relationship to it, in transforming the inner experience, we begin to start to be better able, as I've been trying to suggest, to heal conflicts outside of ourselves, conflicts with others. <clears throat> but this process of understanding this, this karmic DNA, if you will, um, isn't necessarily easy. <laughs> it's not so easy. And as I tried to suggest last week, with the story of St. Anthony and, and more broadly the experience of the Coptic monastics or, or desert monastics in ancient Egypt, who would go out into these harsh living environments as a way to purify their hearts. And I, what I was trying to suggest last week is that the simplicity of our contemplative practice is a little bit like um, a kind of a, a recapitulation slash uh, microcosm of that simplicity. But like St. Anthony, when we go into ourselves with stillness and compassionate attention, we often can encounter inner demons. Or as Douglas Christie, the, the scholar who I was quoting last week, would say, in the ancient world, these, the sense of inner demons was also understood as kind of the unresolved wounds within our psyche. And that's how I'll be using the, 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 the concept here, that when we go into our practice, when we, when we really sit with ourselves quietly and compassionately, it's very often that unresolved wounds start to manifest. And I'll speak, that's what I'm going to be speaking about tonight, how I've started to see that more clearly in my own life and practice. But the, this is the, sort of the conclusion of the overview. The, the, the kind of the explicit benefit, if you will, I hate, I'm not, that's not quite the right word, but the explicit outcome of a willing confrontation, to use the phrase from last week too, to have a willing confrontation supported by the simplicity of silence and compassionate response or compassionate attention, the process that develops is that these demons, the energy of these demons, is transformed and we more directly, this is my sense of it, we more directly start to experience what I was referring to last week with the idea of the mystical heart. We experience a state of union with our life, an integration with our life, and the flow of love, compassion, and care for oneself and others that, that just comes from that, that, that unified experience. 
So that's an overview. That's the broad overview. Now, um, a question that a few of you have asked me from time to time um, is, who is my teacher now? <laughs> Who's my teacher? And at first, you know, I said, oh, I worked with so-and-so and I worked with so-and-so, but none of that, I'm not really working directly with any Dharma teacher, a formal Dharma teacher at the moment. Not to say that I won't in the future. It's just that <clears throat> I, I sort of had a string of probably 20 years worth of working with various teachers closely. But in thinking about the question, the, uh, the comment or quote from the Ch Tibetan teacher Chogyam Trungpa came to me. And I'll, I'll kind of paraphrase this, but Trungpa said something like, after your guru, your, the partner that you're in a relationship with is your teacher, is your greatest teacher. And what he means by that is you don't necessarily need a guru, and I'm not advocating guruship with anybody, but the guru in that model becomes a very powerful mirror to reflect the student back to themselves. And I think what Trungpa met with, with the relationship of a partner is that your partner, and I would extend that to others, you don't need to be in a partner, formal partnership to have this reflection, just to be in relationship with others, whether it's a roommate, good friends, even a pet, <laughs> depending on the depth of your relationship. Good relationships will reflect yourself back to you. And I have certainly found that, both in my relationship with Terry, um, but also more broadly with the, 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 the collection of, of deep and dear friends that I do have that I, I learn about myself in conversation and dialogue and in relationship with these people. And one of the things that I have really come to see more acutely recently is to the degree that my childhood was a stressful and chaotic and at times physically and emotionally dangerous environment. Now I'm not trying to solicit sympathy from anybody. I'm just trying to describe things as I see them, that, that there was a lot of elements in my childhood that were stressful and chaotic. And I can also see more clearly, you know, particularly in, the, in light of the transition and move that Terry and I made to, to Maine together. We came, bought this house and um, started the Sangha and have been living a, a much simpler, quieter, more um, <clears throat> monastic-y type life that the, I've been able to see more clearly unresolved wounds as they manifested in my personality. And that's what I wanted to share with tonight. Um, before I give you this story though, um, or this reflection and story, I just wanna say that I, um, as, as a individual, I find my personality itself is very influential. And by that I mean, you know, when I, when I lived in Ireland, and this will come up now, I, I ha developed an accent, an Irish accent, to the point that um, staff in bars and pubs thought I was Irish after a certain point, which I thought was fantastic. My Irish friends thought it was terrible, <laughs> but, but uh, the reason I'm mentioning this is that I um, have been reading an, an Irish novel, a favorite Irish novel of mine, and the 
the influence of this author is, is alive in me, um, and you'll get a, a bit of a taste of it here. Um, <clears throat> but the story, or the beginning of the story, is recognizing that my childhood influenced my adult personality, or certain aspects of my adult personality. And the result of this shaping has been called various things by various individuals. The more generous out there have used terms like Josh's quote, particular. He's particular. Others have said uptight. Others are more generous saying eccentric. Or my favorite one in Germany and Switzerland is special. Someone's special when they have a lot of hangups. But as I said, those are the generous ones. Uh, the less generous have referred to me as, quote, high maintenance, anal, or as one of my Irish friends put it, he's got a stick up his arse and he's got a pain in me hole. So it seems to me that trauma, and by that word I'm indicating, to quote Judith Blackstone, any experience that cannot be integrated at the time of occurrence. So any experience that you can't integrate at the time of occurrence is a kind of trauma. And there's a spectrum, as we've been saying. But trauma causes parts of oneself, this is sort of the theme of the night, causes parts of oneself to freeze like blocks of ice and freeze into maladaptive behaviors. There's, there can be a literal freezing, and that's one response. But fight or flight are also in the mix of these ice cube patterns. The fears, concerns, worries, and anxieties themselves, I want to be very clear on this point, the fears, concerns, worries, and anxieties themselves are not maladaptive. They adapted themselves and evolved at one point in time when we had no other resource or recourse. These strategies may have even kept us alive. But these strategies become maladaptive later in life in the sense that they can obstruct learning, they can obstruct healing, they can obstruct growing and evolving. So I hope a brief autobiographical vignette from me might illustrate the dynamic that I'm just trying to describe here. Here's where the Irish influence may get a little bit thicker. So this past winter, sometime after the holidays, during one of those bitterly cold stretches with overnight temperatures in the negative teens, so we're down negative 16, 18, one morning, early morning, we were awoken at four o'clock. Terry and I were woken up at four o'clock because an alarm was beeping. This itself caused a terrible fright in me. The sound was at first unrecognizable, but it sounded loud, urgent, and insistent. So soon we stumbled down the stairs in search of the beeping nuisance which was revealed to be a chirping smoke detector. But as we descended, we encountered a blasting shock of freezing air. 
the interior of our cottage was 41 degrees. That's what our weather station's thermometer said, 41 degrees. 41 degrees inside at 4 a.m. when you're in your underwear and confused is not a great way to begin a Saturday morning. No wonder the smoke alarm was beeping. It was freezing, just as we were. Now you might be asking yourself, why was it so cold? The reason it was so cold quickly became evident. The door from the house, so the door from our house to the garage was open, wide open. And so was the garage door itself. This allowed a great channel of sub-zero air to flow without obstruction into our home. Freezing my bollocks and putting a painful twist in my knickers. That's the Irish influence. It then became immediately obvious to me what the proximate cause to the doors being left open was. Terry's son, who I'll refer to as the young fella. The young fella had been asked to close the doors himself after his friend had left. But the doors were gaping open now because he had failed the simplest act of communal responsibility, closing the garage door as well as the door to the garage itself. I shared these obvious facts with Terry, but she didn't seem quite so sure. She wasn't so sure it was her son's fault. But sure, I thought, she's always forgiven his irresponsibility. But not this time, not this day, not this morning. The gas tank on forgiveness was down to its last drop and it was time for consequences. But I knew then that I was in no state for discussing and drafting consequences. My body was as taut as an overly, overly wound ukulele string, about to snap and ridiculously out of tune. I was pacing about the place like those people who pace when they can't sit still, never mind the possibility of getting back to bed. Now the pre-dawn hours passed in a blur, and soon it was close to the time for consequential discussion about the consequences for failing to take responsibility. Failing to take responsibility for the things like giving doors a proper closing. But before I had fully formulated my thoughts on the subject, the young fella and his friend appeared in the kitchen, looking sleepy and sheepishly guilty. Pointing at the door now closed, I gave out to him. Now, gave out, or give out, depending on the tense, is an Irish phrase, you may not know, but give out, they give out, or give, they gave out. It's an Irish phrase that might refer to a verbal upbraiding that usually includes harsh language filled with imprecation, insult, judgment, reprimand, and righteousness. I gave out about the danger he exposed to us all. The potential that the pipes might have frozen. Or worse, they could have frozen and then burst. Happy New Year, and here's your house and its bursticated pipes. 
In giving out, I tried to indirectly suggest that his indifference to responsibility was to blame. But the young fellow seemed confused, and with a beguiling sort of innocence, he asked, What happened? What happened? I repeated, incredulous. What happened? What happened is that you're after leaving the door to the garage and the garage door itself open, nearly freezing us to death as well as nearly freezing the pipes and our plumbing as well. But Gus never left last night, he said, with even more beguiling innocence. We fell asleep during a movie and only just woke up now. I scratched my head at this information. Surely this was all subterfuge, counterfactual nonsense. But I knew if I pushed it further, it might get ugly. So I removed myself to my study. I needed some space to make sense of these details. I was awash in cognitive dissonance. And so I took to my meditation bench and sat. After some time, I came to see the dynamic more clearly for what it was. Terry, 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 in fact, was the last person to shut the door from the house to the garage. But it wasn't her fault that it blew open. She was only leaving the garage door itself open so that the young fella's friend would be more apt to exit through the garage than out the front door, which would have been much safer given all the ice on our path. So she left the garage door open and, the, and, and open so that the friend would be sort of nudged to walk in that direction. But at some point in the early hours of the morning, the wind, the natural movement of air, the wind itself had selflessly blown our door open. But for the last several hours, my special blend and presentation of cognitive neuroses had me barking on all about the big bad wolves that were to blame for the door being blown open. There were, in fact, no big bad wolves, young fellas or otherwise, to blame. I had been thrashing against the wind only. And as I've been say saying or suggesting, the depths of our simple life here in Maine, with its stillness, relative stillness, and mirror-like quality of reflectiveness, let's just say there have been enough similar such thrashings against wind, ice, fire, and earth, that it became clear that I needed some third-party help to better integrate these highly wound and still wounded parts of my psyche. So I found a therapist who specialized in a system that I had had good results with in the past. It's called Internal Family Systems, which I'll say more about shortly. And with some good sessions, my ukulele strings aren't wound so tightly or so out of tune. Smoke alarms chirp when it's really cold. We disarm them and get back to bed. So that's the vignette. Part of the reason I brought this up is that last week, one of you uh, wrote to me after the session 
speaking to the importance of therapeutic work and having potentially a therapist when doing deep spiritual transformative work, mystical work, inner work, whatever you want to call it, doing this kind of deep inner uh, exploration that we do in, in our yoga and meditation life. And I agree. I mean, and I, and I want to speak to that a little bit, that I, I think I've, I have benefited enormously from working with therapists at times. I've worked with one therapist for, for many, many years. And then um, even after all that work, there was obviously still more integrating and processing needing to be done. Um, and that's, I'm trying to model that that's what I, I think happens on the path, that it can come up at any point, the need for this maybe third-party assistance. And so, in speaking about it, one of the things I want to say is that our work here does not replace therapy or formal therapy. But I want to suggest that we can offer ourselves, part of our practice is in a way offering to ourselves the skills of a good therapist. So that in a, in a way, a good contemplative, someone with a good contemplative practice offers themselves and ultimately others, the skills of a good therapist, which I would define as listening deeply and receptively, the ability to listen deeply and receptively, <clears throat> and to respond from compassionate attention. So if you think about it, yin yoga as a yoga practice is not physical therapy. You know, if you need a specific thing addressed that, that the generalized practice of yin yoga doesn't address, then you need to work with a third party therapist to help address the physical need that you, your body might have. And in the same way, I don't think meditation is equivalent to therapy. But in both cases, there is significant overlap. There's physical benefit at least that comes from yin yoga. And there's sort of psychological, psychic benefit that comes with meditation practice. And again, they, 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 they both pivot, the yin yoga, meditation, and then work with either physical or psychological therapist. <clears throat> they all pivot around listening deeply with intention and responsive, or a responsiveness that's compassionate bringing a compassionate responsiveness to the therapeutic encounter. So in conclusion for tonight's talk, um, I want to loop back to some of the, something I was trying to point to or get to last week. When I was speaking about a phase of practice could be maybe best described as surrender. That there's a surrendering at a, point, at a certain point, a deep relaxation of kind of egoic grasping that allows the practitioner to <clears throat> open to the experience of the mystical heart. I should say, sometimes that's referred to as a deeper experience. Um, and I'll, I'm sure I'll be coming back to this in a future talk at another time. But the, the kind of the spiritual comedic irony is that the mystical heart isn't hiding deep within experience. 
It's hiding in plain sight on the surface of every experience. But it takes a certain way of looking to realize that. <clears throat> but I compared surrendering to this mystical heart as one might surrender if they were to go into the ocean and attempt to do um, what I referred to as a kid as a dead man's float, dead person's float, where you lie back and systematically learn to trust relaxing the flailing of your arms, the kicking of your legs, and all the fears that might come up in your mind around what's going to happen. So you have to assume that you're in one of those those netted, uh, cordoned areas of a beach where sharks and, 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 and uh, dangerous things can't get in. So the water is safe. But you learn to let go completely. And in letting go, you're immediately awakened to the ever-present buoyancy of the salt water. The spiritual release into the heart is somewhat similar. That there might, there's a certain level of kind of thrashing and struggle and resistance and not feeling that you can trust it and fear. All of that comes up. But inevitably, all of that activity, what I might gently refer to as egoic thrashing, all that activity is understandable. Just like it's understandable why I still have some neurotic hang-ups from my childhood. It's understandable. But to the degree that it stays active or is, is sort of defining our relationship to, the, to our experience, it can obstruct a deeper union with life and the flow of love and compassion and care that comes from that deeper union that again is on the surface of all experiences. <clears throat> but as I wrote here, the good news in my opinion, the good news is that this thrashing and conflict begins to settle. It will begin to settle when the parts that are doing the thrashing, the parts of us, and this is what internal family system speaks to is how we're made up of a whole network and constellation of different parts with different roles. And I'll be speaking more specifically to some of this in a general sense going forward. <clears throat> but when the parts that are doing the thrashing are listened to, understood, and collaborated with compassion, these parts start to harmonize and an inner stillness is much more readily recognized, tasted, accessed, and revealed. And this is where I want to, uh, want to close by coming back to the Taoist sense. Because what I'm trying to say is that the path to inner peace and stillness involves compassionate listening and in attentive dialogue with the parts of us that are still, unwound, are still wounded or wound up. So by bringing compassionate listening and attentive dialogue with our inner parts, I believe we can begin to experience our surrender 
in the spiritual sense. This is not a, like a political surrender, but a spiritual sense of surrender to a much greater peace within. And from this inner knowledge, in alignment with Taoism, I think we develop the skills to better practice, having worked internally with this, we simultaneously develop better skills of compassionate listening and attentive dialogue with our outer parts, i.e. others, other people, in the interrelated holistic nature of, of being. And in developing these skills, I want to suggest that we all play our role in bending the, tra the trajectory of the past by transforming the consciousness shaped by the past into a more compassionate and peaceful heart for the future. I'm going to conclude with a short passage from Larry Ward's book. I've been, again, transcribing passages from books for, for a while now, and this one came to me the other day. He says, for many of us, the question becomes, am I worthy of being healed? Feelings of guilt, shame, and grief may seem as solid as blocks of ice within us. Feelings of guilt, shame, and grief may seem as solid as blocks of ice within us. Or, the anxiety of our imperfections becoming more exposed paralyzes us from acting and taking the risk to heal. The anxiety of our imperfections becoming more exposed paralyzes us from acting and taking the risk to heal. But these anxieties are part of the healing process, not obstacles to be feared. To move into healing requires us to be vulnerable. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that talk and reflection. I hope it um, stimulates some flow for you within your own practice. And just stay tuned because uh, I will be now over the next several episodes sharing with you a kind of a, an outline structure for how to work with the frozen parts of our being to help integrate them into a more flowing dance with life. And once again, if you'd like to practice with me and Terry to have ongoing support in accessing flow uh, both in your Qigong, your yin yoga, and your mindfulness or meditation practice in life, do check out um, our membership with us. They start at $5 a month, and uh, you can find more about joining the Riverbird Sangha in our show notes there. Um, and I think that's it. Just want to say before I close, um, again, acknowledging the moment we're all in this world, uh, a new outbreak of really traumatic war and that reverberation throughout the whole globe right now, which is on top of all the other wars um, of gas and fire and ideology and all the myriad forms of disharmony. And wherever you are within the network of this disharmony right now, I just want you to know that I wish you well. 
I wish you safety, I wish you peace, and I wish you the support of your practice. So take good care, and I look forward to seeing you soon.